And this summer at Go Weekend on a Go Prep night, it was July 20th, Wednesday night, it was 6.40 in the evening. I still remember I was at one of the houses we were working on and I was talking to a couple teens, I believe it was Cameron Cavalier and uh, Nathan Wagner, and out of nowhere, boom, right on the neck. Didn't see the wasp coming. I didn't see anything coming. All of a sudden, didn't feel the thing land on my neck, just bam, streak came to an end. Now, that streak was in my life, not because I was somebody that avoided wasps. I have another record in my life. I one time killed 60 wasps in Mexico barehanded. We were keeping count that day. But I always messed with wasps. I love to throw rocks at wasps' nest. I love to do all the stuff that boys did. But somehow, either through luck or just because my friends were slower and dumber than me, I never got stung. But that streak came to an end, a sad end this summer. And I get it. I get it. It wasn't too bad, but I get why the old adage is true. You shouldn't kick a hornet's nest, right? And you especially shouldn't kick a hornet's nest and then just stand there. And some might accuse us this morning as a church and maybe even me personally of saying what you're talking about, Jake, this morning is like kicking a hornet's nest. And it's not my intention this morning to kick something that I shouldn't, literally or figuratively. We're not just asking for it this morning or asking for critique. I hope you realize this morning that the desire of our hearts as Christians is a faithfulness, a desire and want to be faithful. I believe that as people that study scripture, we have to be true to our calling in season and out, honest and true to the words of Jesus when it's culturally acceptable or when it's offensive. Because more than just trying to be popular, we are to be faithful. And so today what we're going to do is take not a 30,000 foot view, but I would say more about a 15,000 foot view on the topic of abortion. This very difficult and socially polarizing issue. And because of its difficult nature, because we're trying to pack such a discussion into about 25 minutes, I want you to know a couple things at the outset. A couple disclosure statements I think need to be made. And first, it's this. And this one probably is assumed, but I want it to be said. First, everything you will hear this morning will be coming from a Jesus-centered posture as best as, as, as I can do. It's not my intent to speak in terms of political identities and sides of the aisle, but to only try to speak to the best of our ability from a, from a biblical and holistic view of life. Any challenge or instruction that follows, I want you to know, is given for others who belong to Jesus. So any challenge or anything that I'm going to put forth today comes from a posture to try to fall on brothers and sisters' ears. I believe it's not my job to condemn those whose views are different than me or hold judgment over our culture. Paul is clear in 1 Corinthians 5.12. 
that it is not our job to throw stones at the culture. So it's not a voice I'm trying to give today for us to judge those who hold different views of birth and women's rights and life. What you hear today, you are welcome to disagree with. In fact, you have every right to that, and I, in fact, welcome that. I would love to engage with you after this or this week if we can agree to do that with respect and care. And second, here's what I want you to know. If you are or know of or have in your family someone who's been many of the one of many of the women in our country and in our world that have had to face the reality of the choice of abortion, we want you to know that we are not here today to point fingers. We are only here by grace and we will only depart by grace. So it is not our intent, our purpose, or action to add to the burdens that people carry, to add to the guilt that people carry or to the shame that they carry. Instead, we believe as a church that it is our job to help our friends and our neighbors and our loved ones carry their burdens, not add to them. So in all things, what we're going to do this morning is choose love and center ourselves around scripture. I would like to pray over this and just continue a prayer that I've been praying now for a couple months as I've been preparing this message. Let's pray. Lord, may we see much of you today. Much of your name, much of your grace, much of your message, much of the clarity that comes from scripture. May we just see you. May our hearts not be co-opted by political identities. May our hearts not be co-opted by power. May our hearts just belong and be allegiant to you and you alone. Give me the gift of teaching, Lord, um, that comes only from your spirit, not from me or my talents or my gifts. Let us pray for your spirit to speak, Lord. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Now, we open up this topic. We know that this topic of abortion has many sides and takes and hot takes. There's sides that we take on laws and rights and politics and freedoms and health and poverty and social divides and even things like wealth go into this difficult issue of abortion. But if we were to bring it all down to what is at the core of this, what is the core issue when it comes to abortion? I believe that it probably comes down to care. The core issue of abortion is the question of whose care matters most. Is it the care and health of the mother who's facing a choice or is it the care and health of the child that has no voice in her womb? And I strongly believe that the answer as followers of Jesus to whose care matters most is a resounding yes. It is true that the Bible does not directly mention abortion. There is no passage that says thou shalt not. 
but we still can get our answer of yes here that the care for mother and child from a Christian perspective is the right answer because scripture in many places proclaims a great wisdom. And for this morning, we're gonna go to one book, the book of James, Jesus's brother, that matches and tells us about not only the heart of Jesus, but matches and tells us, as y'all will see later, what early Christians thought and what their ethic was around the early church up until and into the fourth and fifth century of Christianity. So the answer is yes to the core issue. Whose care matters most, woman or baby? Yes. And we find that as we start to unpack places like James chapter two. Go with me there, if you will. In verse one, James, which is this writing to a, a community of people where it seems like James is just putting out his best. It almost works like proverbial wisdom. He's putting out his best sermons and he's, he's, he's making them and encapsulating them in small little bits of wisdom. So in chapter two, he addresses an issue in his community where he says, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, we must not show favoritism. Now, if you know, if you've read James at all, this guy is a fan of being straightforward and blunt. He speaks directly. And the problem he's speaking directly to here in the early days of Christianity is the problem of playing favorites. It seems that partiality, if you read the rest of what's happening here, if you continue in chapter two, partiality is being shown towards the wealthy and successful those who have somehow climbed a social ladder. And in preferential treatment of that group, then another group was being overlooked, the poor, the marginalized. James is being clear here. He is saying, when Christians, if you are a believer in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, practicing preferential treatment for any group is wrong. We must not show favoritism. And it's wrong, James will go on to say, because the best way to show love love for God is to love all people that he has made. So by the time he gets down to verse eight, he says this. He sums up this section with saying, if you really wanna keep the royal law or the head law, the the crowning law found in scripture, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep that, you're doing it right. And what he means by that is all your neighbors. He says the way to get it right is not to show favoritism, but to love every human, wealthy or poor, esteemed or lowly, the born and the unborn, because they all are your neighbor, because they all bear the image of God. Martin Luther King Jr. had a quote where he says this, and he uses a word that we don't use anymore. He says, there are no gradations in the image of God. In other words, there are no levels that somehow you bear the image better than somebody else. He goes on to say, God made us to live together and respect the dignity and worth of every human. That's why we have called today's talk unlabeled. James is saying, don't show treatment of people with labels. 
But unfortunately, we do live in this world, right? We're around many other places, but especially in this topic of abortion, when we speak of abortion, the debate comes with these heavy labels, pro-life, pro-choice. And these labels carry all kinds of other labels with them. They have politics behind them. They have rhetoric behind them. They have history behind them. But they also both have a truth and inconsistencies with them. But when you bring up this topic, if you have ever brought up this topic, you're going to be asked, what label do you carry? Do you find yourself on this side of the political aisle? Do you find yourself choosing this team or this cause or this fight? And I want to show this morning by how looking at scripture, we actually can find ourselves as Christians offering a better way, an unlabeled position, a position that doesn't get co-opted by one or the other, but instead stands and says, here is a better way. Because between the pro-life and pro-choice arguments in America, we see this. And you may disagree with this, but we see that both sides can and do make certain claims at truth, but both sides are not always consistent in their application of that truth. And for a moment, I'll give equal time to both and share what I mean. I want to be clear on this. And we'll start with the pro-choice movement. See, pro-choice is a, is a, is a movement built on the belief that it is the woman's ultimate right to choose for her body what is best. Okay? The inconsistency with pro-choice is that in itself, that is dishonest terminology. Because only one person in an equation between two people has the choice. The expectant mother is given 100% decision-making power and the child in the womb has no ability or no power to choose life. More so, the pro-choice movement makes claims that oppose personhood, that a baby is already a person, a topic that we don't have time to discuss this morning, but it is a position that is loaded with inconsistencies on the, on the basis of ethics and science. Now, it might seem that I'm just picking on one, but let's pick on the other side too. On the other side of the debate, the pro-life stance can sometimes offer inconsistencies and dishonesty as well. The pro-life movement, of course, is anti-abortion and believes in the personhood and then the life in the womb is a baby. But often the pro-life movement can become solely focused on only one kind of life, the life of the unborn. The inconsistency with the pro-life movement is that much of its messaging and advocacy rarely acknowledges the social and economic situations that lead to 60% of elective abortions in the U.S. So it is true when people criticize the pro-life movement and say things like this, and this is a quote, because of the lack of care and support and basic ideas of basic health needs for moms living in poverty more, the pro-life movement has really just become a pro-birth movement. I would say that's a fair 
criticism. And what I want us to do is to look at that and go, is there a better way? Because like so much of the polarized issues in our world, I believe Jesus gives us a better place to stand. One that's not co-opted by the power of politics or the extremes of either sides in long-held debates. Because both groups can be right and wrong. Right in that they're advocating for one person in a weak and challenged position, but both are weak because they're not advocating for both people that are in weak and challenging positions. So James gives us some wisdom here. And without this kind of wisdom from James, we can be sucked into divergent positions because we miss what true religion really is. James has already told us at the end of chapter one. This is a summation passage. He says that religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. To look after orphans and widows and their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. What's interesting in the Greek is there is no and in that passage. Right there in the middle, second line down, there is no and in the Greek. It seems that James is actually saying, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, is to look after orphans and widows in their distress to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So the best way to not be of the world is to care for both and, mother and child. See, the deficit exists in our world when we let politics define how we view abortion. There's this deficit between the pro-life and pro-choice movement because people rarely move towards true religion. And James says true religion always has a both and attitude. He says, if deep concern isn't shown for both mother and child, widow and orphan, then your Christianity becomes lopsided. And it becomes lopsided in such a way that you are no longer really practicing true religion or what we would say being disciples of Christ. Now, let me pause for just a second because at this point you may be asking yourself, or you may be critiquing what I'm saying. Maybe that's arising in your mind and I get it. You may be asking, wait, whoa, 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 Jake. James here is not talking about, he's just talking about born people. He's not talking about the unborn. He's talking about orphans and widows. How then can this apply? How then can you make the connection here to abortion? Well, let me again say this as we pause for just a second. It is true. There are no explicit verses in the Bible against abortion. Again, there's not a thou shalt not. There is a thou shalt not murder. And we have our own inconsistencies with that passage. But we can find from other places that this ethic of caring for the unborn and caring for the mother in distress was a strong ethic in the early church. The early church was living in a Greco-Roman world that not only accepted the termination of children and the unborn, but praised it. And it's out of that world that we have early Christian writings. And these are some quotes from some early Christian writings that I wanna share with you 
that we actually get an ethic, a Christian kingdom ethic based on love for the unborn and for the mother. This is from the Didache. Didache is a collection of early Christian writings that was collected between 50 and 120 AD, super early. And one of the passages in it says, do not murder a child by abortion nor kill it at birth. Justin Martyr, the early Christian writer says, we have been taught. And, and I think we can assume what he's saying is, here's what we've been taught as we follow Jesus, that it is wicked to expose even newly born children for then we would be murderers. And by expose, he means to let them go. Parents would take their children and just leave them by a bridge or leave them by the river. That was called exposing your child, which often led to death. A couple more, Athenagoras said this, we say that women who use drugs to bring on an abortion commit murder, for we regard the very fetus in the womb as a created being, an object of God's care. And Tertullian says, it does not matter whether you take a way of life that is born or destroy one that is coming to the birth. In both instances, destruction of life is murder. Now, those are just four, but I could go on. There's a lot more. But why I share those with you today is it's insightful to know that these statements and teachings of early Christians are proclaimed in a time in history where it was not a crime to kill a child, to abort, to abort a baby in the womb, nor was it a crime if you decided that you could no longer parent well or raise children just to leave your kids somewhere for them to fend for themselves. And so it was in this world that early Christians came in with the ethic of James, of both and, of true religion, and they began to care for orphans and widows, babies, and the moms who had been left as well. And it's this action. If you read early writings from Rome, from Philo and other historians like Josephus, and you read that stuff, what you see when you pick up on things of early Christian ethics, that it wasn't just the Roman roadway that flipped the world upside down. We always say, well, look, well, God, God did that. God made Roman roads so the gospel could spread really fast. Have you ever, I don't know if you've ever heard that. Look, all these good roads so the gospel could spread. What really spread the gospel so fast was a care that was both and that a group of people finally stood up and said, we're not just going to care for one, we're going to care for all. We're not going to show favoritism. So James, what he's teaching here is we as Christians must hold deep concern for both mother and child. And if we are off, he says, you're practicing a false religion. Now, I understand a little bit more of a pause here that this is a very complicated issue. It's nuanced. Anybody that has ever had to face this in their family or the single mother that has had to face this on her own, it's unique. There's thousands, millions of unique stories and situations here. And I humbly realize that and I've realized how arrogant it can sound to try to make sense of that in just a few moments on a Sunday. And I do want to highlight some of those things that in our world, why abortion still exists is there's a lot of moral dilemmas out there. Take, for instance, some of these. Some of these are good. Some of these are bad. Some of these 
you'll be surprised by. But when it comes to the issue of adoption, it's further complicated by things like this. There are approximately 2 million families in the U.S. who are waiting to adopt in our country. 2 million. That's a lot. It's further complicated by the abortion industry. It operates for profit. It's even further complicated by socio and economic situations where 66% of abortions in the U.S. are performed on women who come from ethnic minority groups. 98% of abortions in the U.S. are elective, which may sound, well, that's just easy for us to just blame then. It's all those, they shouldn't be choosing it. But that doesn't mean that those 2% that are fall under the other situations that are more complicated than elective or should, should be ignored. They shouldn't be. It's interesting also, it's further complicated that 50% of abortions in the U.S. are given to women who fall well below poverty level. A disproportionate percentage of abortions in the U.S. are performed on children whose parents have been told they have Down syndrome. The good news is, but it further complicates this, is that the number of abortions has been decreasing in the U.S. since 1990. I highlight that this morning because as people who follow Jesus, we need to remember people are coming from unique perspectives and unique backgrounds. And because this is an issue and a topic that is so nuanced and so complicated, we must then be called to a better and different standard. Anyone can cast a vote. Anyone can get on social media and share a meme about this topic or an article. But what a church and followers of Jesus must grapple with is not overturning of laws. Laws being overturned or laws being upheld can be good. Laws can mitigate evil. I believe in that. But what we should really be wrestling with this, with the topic of abortion is, are we loving our neighbor as we would love ourselves? Are we loving our single female neighbor? Are we loving our immigrant neighbor? Our our black, brown, or white neighbor? Are we loving our unborn neighbor? And if we're not doing this in a way that seeks justice and mercy, then we're only fooling ourselves into belief systems that seem righteous. So I think where we've got to be is we've got to be people that are comprehensively pro-life both and. James further gets into this in James 2.13 where he says this. He says this, because justice and mercy, this is a both and position, just judgment and mercy will be shown, sorry, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Why, James? Whoa. He's saying God will show you judgment without mercy if you don't practice mercy Why? Because mercy is triumphs over judgment. See, what what James is doing is he's echoing Jesus. Jesus spoke at a time where he's like, you need to go see how God desires mercy over sacrifice. 
And what he's also explaining here is that he's saying mercy is the greater virtue. Justice, to be only true in its form from the way of God, it has to be merciful as well. And this means for us that unless we advocate for those seeking abortions who are less powerless than us, more vulnerable than us, and also at the same time advocate for the babies who are voiceless and defenseless, then we are not living out true religion. We are upholding judgment without mercy. Mercy, as we learned from Marcelo last week, so well said, requires what? Other people's shoes. It requires a pro-life stance that goes beyond, well, we passed a law into a pro-life stance that is comprehensive. It's comprehensive from womb to tomb. For the child in the womb to the mom facing extremely difficult questions, mercy pushes us to ask, what if? What if it was my loved one facing a crisis pregnancy? What would it be like if I was the unmarried pregnant woman living well below the poverty line? What if I was the college freshman who was the victim of sexual assault? What if I walked a mile in the shoes of the teenage girls whose parent gave her only one choice and that was to terminate the pregnancy? What if we were in the doctor's office and the doctor tells us that the baby has zero chance of surviving and that the mom's life is in danger as well. See, those are not made up positions and made up stories. Each of those are real life situations and they require a robust stance from Christians to be unlabeled, to go, we're gonna advocate for both. We're gonna walk beside you because we believe in life from womb, in the womb, but we also believe in you finding life all the way to the day of your death. See, James goes one more step, and I believe this applies in verse 16. He shows us how to be comprehensively pro-life when he says this. He says, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace. Keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs. What good is it? Well, it's just wordplay. You're just speaking for a moment. It's not enough for us to say to our world, well, you should not murder. You know that. You should know better than that. Abortion's murder. You should not murder. Now go in peace. Take care of yourself. I'm going to go do my own thing. That's the very attitude James is speaking against here. What he's saying is you got to be comprehensively pro-life because you are kingdom-centered. My heart, as I prayed about this passage, just kept coming back to this, that the only way forward for Christians with this is a more imaginative and embodied display of the kingdom of God, a kingdom whose currency is mercy and whose law is love of neighbor. If we only treat abortion as a political issue with laws that are do's and don'ts, we miss 
this incredible opportunity in front of us. It's an opportunity to rise up and say there's a better way. An opportunity that I want to close with that comes from a doctor, an anonymous doctor. In describing his position on abortion, he says this, and I'll close here. He's a Christian and he says this. The centerpiece of our life and faith is the one who so loved us that he died for us. So where does that leave us? Well, first, don't murder. This is true for both sides of the issue. Well, exerting one's autonomy and taking an innocent life and abortion is clearly wrong and disallowed by scripture. So is being hateful to others on the other side of an issue you disagree with. And second, do unto others as you would want them to do unto you. Imagine you're the one having to make a decision on the other side. Walk in their shoes, build relationships, build community. There is enough hurt in this world to go around and our job is to share it, not push it off on others. Wouldn't it be great if communities communities existed where any mother, married or unmarried, would feel welcomed and loved and known that her needs and the needs of her child would be attended to? If the church would simply do what the church is called to do, there would be no poor and there would be no disregarded in their communities. And then he closes with this brilliant statement. In short, wouldn't we rather build a world where abortion, due to the love we have for neighbor, is not merely illegal, but it has become unthinkable? Amen. The job of a Christian is not anything short of making abortion illegal. That's not. It doesn't do that as much as we think it does. The job of a Christian is to make it no longer an option because we love the outcast and the marginalized so well. If you have somebody that's facing these choices, there are options and you may be their best option. But if you need anything today, we're gonna offer an invitation. We're gonna sing a couple songs and then we're gonna commune together. Let's stand as we sing.